Amen. So Second Peter, it's always interesting uh, filling in for somebody. So with the youth group, you know, we're going verse by verse through books of the Bible. So right now we're going through the book of Romans. Um, super easy to figure out what I'm teaching next because it's like, well, what's next in Romans? Um, to step in for somebody, then it's like, wow, oh, man, I've got a whole Bible to choose from. So what, what are we going to talk about this morning? This morning, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we're going to talk about the blessed state of knowing Christ. The blessed state of knowing Christ. We've all come into a relationship with Jesus, haven't we? And there is tremendous blessing that's associated with your knowledge of Jesus. Tremendous blessing associated by the fact that you know Jesus, and hopefully that'll be made clear as we work through this together. Let's read the first four verses and then we'll work through it. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, or by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world through lust. So Second Peter, this was written by the same guy that wrote First Peter, right? So not rocket science here. This is the Peter. This is Peter who ministered alongside Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the Peter who uh, always had a tendency to put his foot in his mouth and um, speak up when he probably shouldn't and do things that he probably shouldn't have done. But you, you really get a sense from the Gospels that Peter was the type of guy who um, acted first and thought second, right? Uh, we don't have a ton of time to get into... Peter's background and story, because uh, we will be sharing in communion later, and I, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time to remember the Lord. But I do want to give some background to 2 Peter. So who is he writing to? Who is Peter writing to? Well, most likely, he's writing to the same group of churches as 1 Peter. We know this because in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, he says that this is the second time that he's written to them. Uh, these were people in 1 Peter 1, 1, he calls them the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what do we know about them? Well, we know that they were a, persecute, a persecuted group. We know that there are a group of believers who uh, were experiencing, as Peter called it, a fiery trial. Their faith was being tested as through fire. And so all throughout the first epistle, Peter was exhorting them to remain steadfast and strong, even in the face of persecution. That they would walk strong with the Lord, that they would continue to walk in holiness with Jesus, even as they're being physically persecuted. 2 Peter is different because in 2 Peter, he calls for growth and maturity in Christ as the attack against them is no longer physical, but ideological. So there was not necessarily a physical attack taking place, but there was a battle that was taking place for their mind. 
And in 2 Peter, he stresses over and over and over, know Christ. You should know Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Know him. Love him. In fact, in our verses today, he talks about the knowledge of God no less than three times in four verses. And I believe that this is more along the lines of the kind of attack that we face in our society today. So I don't know about you, but I've never personally been physically attacked because of my faith in Jesus. But there is a battlefield for your mind that's taking place in our culture, and we need to make sure that we know Jesus, that we're grounded in truth, that our feet are set firmly upon the rock that is Christ, that we would know him. And so let's take another look here in verse one. How does Peter introduce himself? Well, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So he says, first of all, I'm a bondservant. This is the Greek word doulos. And it it literally means slave. It means a slave. Uh, And specifically, a slave by choice, meaning I am purposefully placing myself underneath the authority of another. In this case, I'm placing myself under the authority of Jesus. And then he says what his master, Jesus, has called him to be, and that is an apostle. The word apostle literally means one who is sent out or one who is sent on a mission. Now, we know that uh, there were the original apostles in the first church who were sent out and they proclaimed the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They laid the foundation of the church for us, right? This is what Peter's referring to. But I love the order with which Peter presents this. He says, I'm, an, I'm a bondservant first and then an apostle. I'm a slave of Jesus first, and then I'm an apostle. I believe that Peter could only walk in his calling as an apostle because he first submitted himself to Jesus as his slave. He could only be an apostle because he had first submitted himself to the authority and headship of Christ, that he had given himself over to his master's will. And when a person comes to faith in Jesus, we often talk about this. We often say, hey, you need to accept Jesus as what? As your Lord and Savior. And too often, well, maybe not too often, it's a good thing, we recognize with the Savior part, don't we? Like, Jesus is our Savior. This is wonderful. We love it. But he's also what? Your Lord. Your Master. Submit to him as the one who has all authority over your life. You no longer belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. You no longer belong to yourself. It's not what you desire. It's what he desires. And we are so often concerned about What has the Lord called me to be? Like that specific will in your life, right? Peter said, I'm called to be an apostle. We want to know, well, what is that? What am I called to be? What is God's specific will and plan for my life? And that's a good question to ask, isn't it? If the Bible says that he has prepared good works beforehand from the foundation of the world for you to walk in, we want to know what those are, don't we? But let me say this. 
You're not going to find that out unless you first submit yourself to Jesus as his slave. Submit yourself to Jesus. He's the master. He's the one who has the authority. Have the attitude of, I don't care what it is. I just want to serve him. I want to love him. I want to walk with him. I want him to be glorified in my life. And if you have that attitude, the whole calling thing, the good works thing, he's going to make those things clear. He's going to show you step by step. Why? Well, because you belong to him now. And he's going to put you to good work. We talked about this last week. He's going to make you useful and prepared for every good work. Useful and prepared for every good work. Let everything that you are be wrapped up in the idea that you are a doulos. You are a bondservant. You're a slave of Christ. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Everything else in this life ought to be secondary to that. And so second half of verse one, he says who he's writing to. He's writing to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says that these people, and I would say us as well, so by extension, Peter's writing this to us, to those who have received like precious faith. Well, what does that mean? Peter's simply saying, I'm writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind of value. So when you read precious, don't think like, oh, I've got my precious little faith right here. You know, like it's so cute, you know, my little faith. No, no, no. This is talking about uh, like a, a valuable thing, like a precious metal, something that's of great worth, right? And he says, you have received like precious faith, a faith of the same kind. Faith of the same kind as what? Peter's saying a faith of the same kind as my faith. We often can look at apostles, men like Paul, men like Peter, and read about the great deeds that they did in Scripture, and it's wonderful. We can think through church history and think of all the spiritual giants, William Wilberforce, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, all these mighty men of God who were greatly used by the Lord. And let me tell you something, you don't have anything that they didn't have. It's a faith of the same kind. It's a faith of the same value. There's no, no such thing as like a super Christian. You have everything accessible to you that they had. And as we submit to our master as his slave, be content with however the Lord wants to use you. Whether it's like Peter, he was an apostle. Whether it's like the, the big giants of the faith, like you know George Whitfield or, or whatever, but what if he's calling you to serve in an unseen way that is secret that only you and him know about? Walk in whatever it is that the Lord has placed before you and be content with what he's called you to be. He's the master and he calls the shots. So we move into verses two through four. We begin to discuss what I was talking about in the beginning, the, the blessed state of knowing Jesus he mentions a number of things here, different blessings that we have because we know the Lord. Verse two, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This morning we're going to talk about three different blessings that we receive through knowing Jesus. You can read it there. We receive grace and peace in verse 2 in the knowledge of God. In verse 3, he says that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? How do we have all things? Through the knowledge of him who called us. Verse 4, by which, this knowledge of Christ, we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. Those three things, grace and peace, all things for life and godliness, exceedingly great and precious promises, and we receive these through the knowledge of Christ. Let's, before we talk about those, let's talk about this word knowledge. What does it mean to know? What does it mean to know the Lord? Well, let me, first of all, state the obvious. Hopefully it's obvious. God can be known. Now, isn't that amazing? Like, we, we should never lose the wonder of that one fact. God can be known. We're not agnostics who believe that there's some distant God out there somewhere, but he's unknowable and he's hidden himself. No, no, no. We can know the maker of the universe. We can know the creator. We can know the one who formed us and saved us and loved us. We can know him. And the wonder of that should not be lost on us. In Hosea 6.3, the prophet Hosea is calling the nation of Israel back to the Lord, calling them to repentance. And he says in this verse, oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn and the coming of the rains in early spring. We can know the Lord and let us press on. What's that? Let us put effort forth. Let us pursue. Let us chase after the knowledge of God. The Lord can be known. He can be known. And if God can be known, let us press on to know him. And when the Bible talks about knowing God and knowing Jesus, I don't think it's only speaking of an intellectual knowledge. Now, I believe an intellectual knowledge is really good. It's, it's good to know right doctrine, right? It's good to have verses memorized. Uh, it's good to know apologetics. It's good to think deeply about the things of God, right? But I think that it's also talking about a relational knowledge. So it's not just an intellectual, I've crammed all sorts of thoughts and ideas about God into my brain, I've memorized the verses, I've read all the books, I've done all of this, but it doesn't ever touch my heart. No, 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 it's talking also about a relationship. How do you get to know those people that are closest to you? Like, think about your best friend. Think about maybe your, your spouse, your kids. How do you get to know them? You spend time with them. You spend time in their presence. You, you talk to them. You communicate. Why would we think that it's any different in our relationship with our God, who can be known? 
We can know him in an intellectual way, which is good and it's important and we should, but it, equally important to that one fact, we should know him through relationship. We should know him by spending time in his presence. It's not just, I know things about God. Because listen, you can, there's a big difference between knowing something about a person and actually knowing them, isn't there? Right? So let me put it to you like this. So um, hopefully this doesn't offend anybody. I don't know why it would necessarily, but I really love watching football. And so I'll probably do that today when, when I get home. I'll probably watch a little bit of football. I'm not a Chiefs fan, but I love watching Patrick Mahomes play. Um, he's just super fun to watch, super athletic. Um, now, let's say that this afternoon I fall down a Wikipedia hole and I read all sorts of different facts about Patrick Mahomes. So I could like go find out how tall he is. I could probably figure out like even what kind of food he likes. I could see if he's married or not married. I could read about his touchdown to interception ratio and uh, his quarterback passer rating and all of these different things. And so let's say after I climb out of that hole, I'm sitting with my wife, Megan, after, after that. And I say, man, I really know Patrick. She'd be like, wait, what? You do? Yeah, I mean, he's like five foot 11. He's married. Um, he likes this type of food. He prefers, you know, not to have pineapple on his pizza. Like, these are all made up facts, by the way. I have no idea. Um, I haven't fallen down that Wikipedia hole yet. Um, so she would be like, honey, you're just telling me facts about him. I was like, no, but I know him. You don't know him, you know things about him. There's a big difference between knowing about a person and actually knowing them. And what's the difference? It's the relationship. It's the interaction. It's the time spent in each other's presence. And so I know my wife, and I know her probably better than any other person on the face of the earth right now, not because like I studied different things about her, but because I've spent time with her. We've spent countless hours talking and laughing um, and grieving and just being with each other. And so if we understand that on this human level, then we should understand it on that level with our relationship with the Lord. We can know the Lord and not just know about the Lord. We can actually know him like we would know our spouse. We can actually know him like we would know our best friend. We can actually know him like we would know our kids and let's not approach our relationship with the Lord with mere intellectualism. As important as that is, and as much of a place as it does have, I'm not saying that it's unimportant because it should be a part of our, our walk with him. But unless that intellectualism actually reaches down and touches our heart, and we have a relationship, and an experience, and an encounter with the living God, then what is intellectualism? You know, I, I'm convinced that many of the people who are deconstructing their faith have an intellectual knowledge of God, but they haven't had that experiential knowledge. They haven't had that relationship where they know him like a brother. And I know, again, this is a complex issue, and I'm not just trying to boil it down. I think that this is one of the, the main issues, that, that they, they're not encountering the Lord they're not encountering his presence. Do you know the Lord? 
Do you know him like you would know your close friend or your spouse or your kids or your brother? When you really know a person, the things that you know about them come in line with your interaction with them and your relationship with them. And it should be no different in our walk with Jesus. It should be no different. And the Lord has given us tools for us to know him like that, hasn't he? The Lord has left us his word. Now listen, before you think, well, that's just intellectual. No, it isn't. The Bible says about itself that it is living and active, and it's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and it can cut between the joints and the marrow. And so let me encourage you that when you read your word, you're not just doing it for intellectualism to cram things about God into your mind, that you're allowing that time to bring you into an experience with the Lord. I read my Bible today. That's wonderful. Did you meet with Jesus? Did you meet with the Lord? Did you hear from him? Did you allow his word to to cut your heart? He's given us prayer, a way to talk to him, a way to communicate. I would encourage you, don't pray just because you feel some sort of religious obligation to do so. Pray so that you have a way to communicate with your Savior to talk, to, for, for you to express your heart to him and for him to express his heart to you. Enter into the presence of the Lord and pray to him like any good relationship. There should be that communication. If I were to tell you, yeah, I've been married to Megan for you know over 15 years, but I just can't remember the last time I had a meaningful interaction with her. You'd be like, whoa, <laughs> I think you need to go spend some time with your wife. By the way, that's not the case. We've got a great marriage. Um, Love her to death. Uh, We're doing fine. But if I were to tell you, hey, yeah, I just can't remember. We haven't really talked, not had meaningful interaction, meaningful conversation with her, then be like, just go spend time with her. Take her out on a date. Okay, if you've not had meaningful interaction with the Lord, go, go spend time in the presence of the Lord. Just go sit before him. Be in his presence. Draw close to him. Don't just use Bible reading and prayer time as like, I'm going to check something off a list. Use these things as tools. If I could use that word, tools to know and draw close to the living God. We can know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. Let us press on to know him. So Peter mentions a number of blessings, three blessings in fact. Here in verses two through four, the first one, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. He says, grace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor for us. Grace is that thing that that the Lord uses to bring us into the body of Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Now, I would say that grace is not something that stops at salvation because the New Testament writers use the word grace uh, to basically express a means by which the Lord uses his grace uh, to sustain us. And to allow us to walk in victory and power, to serve, to overcome, to be sanctified, to endure. I'll give you a couple examples. 2 Timothy 2.1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in his grace. 2 Peter 3, verse 18, he tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, this is Paul speaking, and he's talking about how he had a thorn in the flesh, and he pleads with the Lord, Lord, please remove this. The Lord says to him, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is, is the power that he uses in our lives to sustain us, to allow us to endure, to, to, his grace is sufficient for us when we're in trials. His grace is sufficient for us as we serve and his grace is multiplied unto us in what way? The more that we know Jesus, the more, the more that it's multiplied, I believe. He talks about peace, the peace of God. When we come to know the Lord, we're immediately brought into a place of peace with God. So we were previously under his wrath, and now we are at peace by the blood of Jesus. But again, just as with grace, I don't think that the peace of God is just something that happens at salvation and stays at salvation. In fact, Paul told the Colossian church to let their hearts be ruled by the peace of God. And so God's peace is something that, as we know him more, should flood our hearts more. And what's the, the idea is that, man, if I know the Lord, and if I know that he's faithful, and if I know that he's all-powerful, and I know that he's sovereign and all-knowing, and I know this both in my head, and I know it by experience, then I'm not going to be freaking out the next time a trial comes my way. I'm going to be flooded with the peace of God because I know who my God is. So we receive these things continually in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The second thing that Peter discusses here is found in verse 3. He says that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So he says, his divine power has given to us some things that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. No, that's not what it says, is it? He says it's, he's given to us, how much? All things. Everything that you need is found in your relationship with Jesus. So when you come to Christ, it's not as if the Lord looks at you and he says, well, you know, I'm going to just leave you there. Good luck. Hope you make it here in one piece. You know, he doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going to give you everything that you need for life and for godliness. You have what you need today in Christ. You have what you need today to live a godly life before him. You have what you need today to overcome sin. You have what you need today to walk as a godly person. You don't have to wait. You don't have to have the attitude of, well, you know, I'm gonna wait for a later time. Maybe some other time I'll really, you know, pursue my walk with the Lord. You don't have to do that. You have what you need today in Christ right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord hasn't held back from you? 
that you have everything that you need in Christ. Listen, my brothers and sisters, you do not need to go outside of Christ to find fulfillment in this life. You do not need to go outside of Christ to be satisfied. You do not need to go outside of Christ to have a sense of wholeness. You don't need to go outside of Christ for your provision. You don't need to go outside of Christ for wisdom, for salvation, to make decisions. You have what you need in Christ today because he says that through your knowledge of him, you have everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness. Let's not approach our walk with Christ like this, like, oh, well, I'm so happy that I know Jesus, but I just don't think that he's enough to help me cope with my issues. I'm so happy that I know Christ, but I'm not really going to be happy until I have this other thing. I'm not going to be happy until I get married. I'm not going to be happy till I have kids. I'm not going to be happy till I have this dream fulfilled or that possession I'm so happy that I have Christ, but he's not enough for me to be able to deal with my issues, to deal with my past, to deal with the things that I'm struggling with. Listen, brothers and sisters, Christ is enough. He's enough for you. Find what you need in him. Find what you need in Jesus. Colossians 2.10 tells us that we are complete in him, Christ is enough for you. And how does he accomplish that? Like, how does he, how does this happen? Well, Peter tells us there in verse three, it's his divine power that has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge. So it's his divine power through our knowing Christ. And so when we feel like I need something outside of Christ to satisfy or you fill in the blank, whatever that may be, that's diminishing the power of God. It's his divine power that provides for you all that you need through your knowledge of him. How powerful is God? He's all powerful, isn't he? He's completely powerful. He has enough power to meet you where you are. He has enough power to meet you in the situation that you're in to help you with your past to help you with your struggles and your issues and your desires, and he is enough to give you what you need. Christ is enough for you. And find everything that you need in him. Lastly, in verse four, he says that we've been given promises. He says, by which, speaking of the knowledge that we have of Christ, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He says that we've been given exceedingly great and precious promises. Um, That word exceedingly great, it's the Greek word mega, So I kind of like that. Like, the Lord has given you mega promises, right? Uh, And listen, some have estimated, I didn't go and count, so, you know, you can take this for what it is. Some have estimated that as you read through the pages of Scripture, there are over 30,000 promises of God given to his people. Now, I'm 
Again, I didn't count, so don't say Daniel said. I, I don't know. There's just people who have estimated this. Um, whether or not that number is accurate, I do know that you'll be hard-pressed to read through a book of the Bible and not find a specific promise for God's life for you. Right? Now, we have received so many promises. Let me name a few. You've received the promise that if you call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. You've received the promise of the Holy Spirit that when you come to faith in Jesus, you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit who's going to lead you into truth and give you power for ministry. You've received the promise that as you seek first the kingdom of God, the Lord is going to provide for you what you need. You receive the promise in Romans 8, 28, that he works all things for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. We have promises of peace and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in Christ. We have the promise that he's returning, that he's gonna come upon this earth and rule and reign. You have the promise that your body will be resurrected and that you will live eternally with Jesus. Would you call these mega promises? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I would. We've been given exceedingly great and precious promises. And let me say this, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And is our God good? Is our God faithful? Yeah, he is. These are not like schoolyard recess promises, you know, like I had my fingers crossed, you know, you don't get that one. Like that's not, that's not our God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Can I encourage you guys to, as you know Jesus more and more, to rest in the promises of God? We sing that song, I will rest in your promises. My confidence is your faithfulness. Now let that be your heart. Rest in the promises of God. Cease striving. Be still. Know who he is. Rest in those promises that he has given to you. He's given to you. And how do we receive these things? Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, by which, by that knowledge, we receive great, mega promises. Let us press on to know the Lord. Let us press on to know him more and more. And if you're looking at your life and you're like, I don't remember the last time I had a meaningful interaction with Jesus. Okay, that needs to change, doesn't it? If I, if I told you that about my wife, you would tell me, to my face, Daniel, that needs to change. That needs to change. Go spend time with her. Okay, if that's you in your walk with the Lord, go spend meaningful time in the presence of God and go get to know your Savior more. And as we turn our hearts to the communion table, uh, I just love that we're having communion today. I just encourage you, let's take time this morning to remember why we can know the living God in the way that we can. 
We can know the Lord in this way, not because of some work that you did or not because you deserve it, but you can know the living God in this way because Jesus came as a man and he shed his blood on the cross for your sins and for my sins and has beckoned us to come to himself to know him. The veil in the temple was torn when Jesus breathed his last. What does that signify? That was the Lord saying, you can come in. Come into my presence. Come in to know me. Interact with me. And so let's take time this morning to remember why we have that opportunity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that what we're reading about here is true, Lord, and it's, we know it's true because of what a faithful God you are. What a kind and trustworthy and gracious Savior you are, Lord. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that we can know you, Lord. So let me encourage you, if, if that was you and you just feel like, man, I, I'm not having those meaningful interactions with the Lord. I'm, I'm not experiencing him. Um, man, just go to the Lord right now. Use this time of communion to draw close to him and purpose in your heart that I'm gonna take time with my Savior moving forward. I'm, I'm tired of this. Maybe you're here and you've never come to faith in Jesus and you need to do that today. Let me encourage you that there would be no better decision that you could make. There's not a relationship that's more fulfilling and satisfying and great than your relationship with God and he wants to save you and draw you to himself and give you an eternal hope. And so how do you get saved? Will you call upon his name? You confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead. Bible tells us you will be saved. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Just bless this time, Lord. Draw us close to you. I pray that we would just have a sweet encounter with your presence this morning as we share in communion together. Amen.